0: Alright, so I was in America. I had a chance to go to Portland, Oregon, and I thought, Oh, Kevin Burke lives in Portland, Oregon. I'm gonna get his phone number, I'm gonna phone him up and ask him if he'd do an interview. How did so that I for him up? You? He said, I'm just out walking the dog, <laughs> <laughs> but he said, I'll be home in a minute and I'll check my diary. But I don't think we're getting him on tomorrow, so come on over. And that's what I did. So that's today's episode an interview with Kevin Burke, member of the Botty Band, legendary Irish fiddle player, uh, one of the one of the most, um, as you'll hear, one of the most exquisite players that you could ever hear and a lovely, generous, uh, warm uh,
1: individual. So that's today's episode. Kevin is actually also performing in Drogheda during the Flakiole on the 16th of August in the Highlands. I think it's about 10pm. If there are any tickets left, get yourself one. It will be an absolute treat. Um, Last thing before we get into the interview is just another note on Patreon. To anyone that went over to Patreon dot com forward slash baloney program last week and became a patron for us thank you so much that means the world if you're listening to this for the first time patreon is a website which allows you to become a patron of the arts let's say this podcast is (laughs) the arts essentially what it does it means we don't have to go looking for advertisers we don't need to stop the podcast and advertise something we don't need to recopy at the end and all that kind of stuff right that's something we never wanted to do but we do want to have a community grassroots organization that can maybe fund itself if you want to help us do that head over to patreon.com forward slash baloney programs those few shillons will go a long way to help us keep on producing this absolutely and now kevin burke
0: So you grew up in, you were born in London. Where yeah. were, you, where were you?
2: I'm actually Cockney. An actual? Yeah, I was born within the Sound of Bells. You were? Yeah. Uh-huh. Hackney Hospital. Uh-huh. What, what, what was your address? Well, I wasn't living in Hackney. <clears throat> uh, our address was uh, in Charlton, South London, just across the river uh, from Hackney. Um, 105 Eastcombe Avenue. Charlton, London, SE7, (laughs) and we didn't have a phone, so I don't have a phone to remember. (laughs) So, so what, what,
0: like, what, what did your mum and dad, dad do? So they were from, uh, were they from Sligo?
2: Yeah, both, both my parents were from Sligo. My father left to join the navy in the Second War, and after the war, he went to Palestine as a member of the Palestine police when they were you know the Brits were setting up Israel they were given the job of setting up this new country Israel so he was part of the Palestine police until 48 when the Brits left and Israel became its own place and um, in the meantime my mother who grew up probably seven or eight miles from my father's village. His village was called Drumore West. Um, My mother had moved into that village uh, to to help her brother set up a tailor shop. So I presume that's when they met. My father was home on leave or he left the police or whatever. Um, That's when they met first. And then he, when the Palestine police was disbanded, he joined the London police, moved to London. And not long after that, my mother moved to uh, London as well to continue her tailoring career. She worked in a, in a big department store called Barker's in Kensington. And then they got married in forty nine and I was born in 50, and uh, I came a few weeks early, so that's what my mother, my father was working in the East End, so I don't know, was she over visiting him, or over as part of her work, she used to work with some of the Jewish tailors in the East End, Mm -hmm. but anyway, she wasn't quite ready for me to be born, but all of a sudden I was on the way, so I had to go to the nearest hospital, which turned out to be Hackney, so I'm a bona fide company.
0: <laughs> what took your dad into the navy? That's kind of interesting, because as a, as, a, as an Irishman, kind of joining the the British Navy,
2: uh, war the wartime the war effort. Uh, his dad was in the navy in the First War. His dad was kind of a career navy guy, but uh, also a sly uh, We're talking talking about the British Navy here.
0: Yeah. Yeah, yeah,
2: yeah, yeah. Derry was one of the ports. My my father's. Navy career was mainly on the North Atlantic convoys, um, so Derry would be a port they'd use a lot, and officially, as British servicemen, they weren't supposed to go into the south, but unofficially, well, any time they dock in Derry, all the Irish blokes would be given leave, and you know. It was understood they'd all go home, mm. you know. <laughs> so that's uh, that's where they went, even though it was it was uh, not strictly uh, lawful, you know. Um, but it was just an understanding, you know. Mm. So, so what was your
0: what was your when you think about growing up in in London? What was it like? Was that was it a, a happy time for you? Do you?
2: Um, I was an only child till I was thirteen, so I felt lonely a lot, um, but I couldn't say it was unhappy. But I do, I do remember um, my mother working hard because she she worked at home a lot of the time. I remember the hours she, she'd put in with the tailoring, you know it was, it was hard work. And my dad was a cop doing shift work, so uh, that wasn't easy either. and he was he was still in the East End, so every day he'd cycle through Blackwell Tunnel to Poplar or Bow or wherever he was stationed Stepney. and um, home. he was very fit, he was a bit of an athlete. Um so when he wasn't working he'd be he'd be doing training going to going to events at weekends and um but it was a shift work thing you know he'd have night duty and he'd be gone in the morning and then home in the evening and sometimes it'd be the other way around he'd be there in the morning but he would be gone in the evening um and he um he was one of those guys that um Kept a lot of it f- outside the home, you know. And of course, when I got to be a bit older, I could see why he didn't want to be bringing bringing stuff, up, you know, police work home. Uh, because a lot of the, especially in the East End, it was pretty rough. You know, the, he was he was a cop. The, you probably heard of the craig brothers. Yeah, you know, they were neighbours. He knew he he used to actually see them across the road sometimes when they were kids. He knew the mum and dad, knew the whole family, and um, so there was that kind of respect for lawlessness. You know, if you were a cop, you were already the opposition. But at the same time, there was a kind of a he liked it. He actually liked it. There was a rivalry between the villains and the cops, but it was there was an understanding. And in fact, when he retired, he became for a short time he became manager of an Irish dance hall in Fulham. And uh, one night he got a call. Uh, there was a lot of trouble apparently in the club or suspected trouble people were getting alarmed and it turned out all these villains from the east end had shown up and it turns out far from causing trouble they were there to see if he needed a hat in case there might be trouble (laughs) so he had to tell his his villain friends you know thanks but clear off you're not welcome round here.
0: So so what about yourself then? So you you're growing up um oh, I was, I was, I you, you don't see him that no, of course not. No. Oh, he's
2: a <laughs> <good boy. laughs> uh yeah. no, I went to I went to Catholic school and you know, brought up Catholic and um it was a po- like lower middle class upbringing, like the, the first house or the first place we lived, that place in Charlton it was an upstairs flat and there was a, an older couple in the downstairs flat it was just two flats one on top of the other um and of course they'd be complaining about me i, I was a, i was a kid you know i was kicking football and jumping up and down and making noise and they were older people they didn't like noise you know um the the, the railway ran at the back of the house Uh, It was an area that was heavily bombed during the Blitz, so there were big cracks in the sides of the walls and stuff. I remember I used to hide stuff in the crack. I could get my hand in, you know, my little childish hand could fit in the crack. So I'd hide stuff like chewing gum and, you know, sweets and things that I wasn't supposed to have, maybe. Um, um, But the parents did a, a great job, really. And then when I was 13, when I was about 9 or 10 we moved out a bit to a place called New Eltham and the house at the time was in Kent, it was literally about 20 yards over the border into Kent. Um, Now of course it's all part of Greater London. Uh, But it was a a semi-detached house, you know, suburban house. and then uh, when I was 13, I had a sister, and soon after, two more brothers. Uh, so the last fellow was born when I was about 17, and then when I was 18, 19, I left to go to college and go around the place. So I was more like an uncle to them than a brother, really. Mm-hmm. But it became a busy house instead of a quiet house, you know. Um, and, uh, you know, the, the, the Irish thing... Couple of the, a couple of the teachers I had were Irish, um, but bringing the fiddle to school was kind of odd, you know, it was, it was a sissy thing. Um, and I got a bit of flack for it, but not a lot, because in my school you got flack... Whether you liked it or not, you'd you. I mean, if you had freckles, you'd you'd be teased about having freckles, and if you didn't have freckles, you'd be teased about not having freckles. Like it was a no-win situation. Everyone got uh, harassed, you know. And there was always, you know, every day in the schoolyard, there was a scrap. You know, two or three guys would get into it, and you know, rough and tumble. But you know. The teacher would come and start yelling and grab you by the ear and <laughs> tell you to grow up <laughs> and that'd be the end of that like you know so, so so where was the um
0: where was the seed of the music for you at this well, point parents, when you were a youngster
2: my, my parents both loved traditional music they didn't play themselves but my father's father played and his mother's sister played um, on my mother's side she had an uncle, Parik Malarkey, who was a really great fiddler. I never met him, but any anyone I knew anyone I ever met who knew him, almost the first thing they'd say about him was, God, did you ever hear that fella played the fiddle? What a great fiddle player he was. Mm. But he was kind of a recluse, you know, he didn't he didn't go out much. But all the local people would know him as a great fiddler. So there was music in the family, my parents loved it. They'd always be going to dances, Cayley's, you know, and and sessions in pubs, and they'd bring me, uh, and and often people would come to the house. Other people living in London would come to the house, and there'd be sessions in the house. And um, because my dad was cop, I suppose, and respectable guy, you know, he didn't drink, and my mother didn't drink, so, when there'd be young people coming over from Ireland, their parents would often send them to us as this kind of safe house for them to find their way in London. Mm-hmm. And a lot of those people, again, came from Sligo, Mayo, and would be players, mm-hmm. teenage players, you know, or people who liked music. Um, so, I just grew up with it around the house and uh, records. You know, my father, when he left Palestine, he got a, a, a what they used to call the mob money. You know, kind of a lump sum, um, and he spent it more. He spent it all, I think, on a record player and some records. And all those records were Sligo fiddlers mainly, mm-hmm. Coleman, Calor and James Morris and Huey Gillespie, a few other things. You know, but those records were played all the time in the house.
0: So that was weaving its way into your... Yeah. Into your head.
2: And when I was seven or eight, I started taking fiddle lessons. Mm-hmm. My parents weren't musicians, so they sent me to a music teacher who happened to live down the street, classical teacher. And she, she was a really fascinating woman, very wealthy. W- what was her name? Christofferson was her... Maiden name Gibson was her married name, but she always went by uh, Christofferson, Jessie Christofferson. And she, uh, her her family was very wealthy. I think they, uh, I think her dad owned uh, coal mines, which in the Victorian area would would be like owning oil wells today, you know. And of course, this was in Britain. Britain ruled the world, you know. Um the steer in the British Empire with the coal mines. And that they owned lots of property. Anyway, all the men during the two wars, all the men died. The brothers and uncles and so there were three sisters left. And they sold nearly everything and invested the money. they didn't want to run coal mines or be property managers or any of that. So but they they uh, and they 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 had one house in Charlton before the war it had been kind of a prestigious neighborhood but after the war probably because of the blitz it was a lot less prestigious but they stayed there they they uh, had a house there one of these big old victorian houses and would give music lessons to the local kids for a pittance i realize now uh like my, my In today's money, it'd probably be like 50 bucks a year or something. And my mum my would often do tailoring work instead of paying, you know. Mm-hmm. And if they, it, with most of the violin students, they'd send them through the academics, you know, the, the guild hall exams. Mm-hmm. But lots of the kids, if they didn't want to do that, was fine. You know, if they wanted to learn how to play Christmas carols or a bunch of songs to play down the pub and, or a sing-along at a Christmas party or something, they'd do that. They were, they were Like, she was really old. Do you, do you know Miss Havisham from Great Expectations? Yeah. Well, when I was, was taking lessons there, especially when I started, that's what she reminded me of. This old woman in a big old dark and imposing house, you know, and uh, I'd have to go there with my fiddle, and she'd yell at me and scream at me, Sharper, out, you know. But she was great, and musically, she was incredibly open-minded. I realise now, I you know. Didn't...
0: How How do you realise that? Like, what was she?
2: Well, she she loved the the Stones and the, the Who. And um all the modern music and she used to say it's great, these kids are making their own music, you know. I mean they don't need us. They don't need us anymore. They're doing all things fantastic, you know. And, and, and,
0: and
2: we- for a woman a woman like seventy-five or eighty years of age in nineteen sixty, a posh semi aristocratic woman lauded with money, um she was supposed to be the, the complete antithesis of that, a classical music teacher. Like, she's supposed to hate the rock and roll and the Teddy Boys and all that stuff, but she loved it, like, loved it. It's to the point p- where she'd, she'd sometimes, if a song came on the radio or she was expecting to hear a song on the radio, she'd sometimes make me wait for my lesson because she wanted to hear the new Who's single or something. Oh.
0: So, so what were you getting out of it, apart from, so you're learning the basics of the violin and presumably reading reading music?
2: You know? Yeah, um, well it was, to me it was just another chore, that, you know, you have to learn how to spell, and you, you know, one of these things that in, adults make you do, and I just kind of went along with it, you know, like, you have to make your bed, and you have to polish your shoes, and you have to do your multiplication tables, and, you know, I just went along with it. I didn't really enjoy it. But by the time I got to be 13, 14, I started to get interested in music. You know, fascinated with the sounds. Some of the sounds that I'd hear... On the radio, Manfred Mann and the Kinks and all that. My classmates would be talking about stuff like that, but I'd also get in. I was also interested in what I was hearing at home and the records and watching these guys come round the house and play, and how everyone seemed to really enjoy this guy, but this other guy, you know. There wasn't the same glee when he played, so what was the difference? You know? And sometimes I'd feel it myself. I thought, this guy's great, you know? but I didn't know why. Mm-hmm. So I just started to get interested, and I wanted to play. And of course, by the time that happened, I could already play. And I saw it happen to some of my friends in school. They wanted to play too or play piano or play guitar, mainly guitar. But they didn't really want to learn how to play. They didn't want to do their scales and do their practice. They just wanted to play, you know. And, of course, it doesn't really work like that. For most people, you have to learn how to play and put a bit of time in. And a lot of teenagers don't have the patience, you know. They want the end product, but they don't like the route to get there. So they give it up after a while. But by the time that happened to me, I could already do that stuff. I'd, I'd spent five or six years doing these mindless scales and knowing the difference between an up ball and a down bow, and learning how to slur notes and, you know, playing Hungarian rhapsodies and, you know, battling my way through Mendelssohn's Concerto and stuff like that, <laughs> you know? And, you know, like a lot of it was tiresome, I had no joy out of it. But after a while, it's, the penny started to drop. But it, uh, the academic side of the classical playing was uh, so much uh, more grim than the social side of the Irish music. The Irish music had this great social aspect where I'd meet people and have a lot of fun with them and listen to these stories. And, of course, they're all immigrants. So what they talked about when they were 10 or 12 wasn't what I was doing when I was 10 or 12. Like they, they, didn't, they weren't watching TV, you know, watching Top of the Pops on the TV, because they didn't have a TV. They were talking about what happened to the donkey when it got stuck in the shed, or something like that, you know, I didn't have a donkey, so...
0: But that's, a, that's a really interesting kind of bridging of yeah. the experience of going from rural Ireland to, yeah. to an urban Irish experience in London, yeah. right, it's yeah. really...
2: Yeah, I know, like I used to go and play, I didn't play in the park, I played in the bum site. You know, my mum would say, where are you after now? And I'd say, i am gone up to the bum site, meet my mates up there. And they'd oh, okay, well, you know, be back for your dinner, you know. Uh, and when I think of it now, like the bum site was just a word meaning a play area. But when I think about it now, it's like, you know, five, six years previous, that was a building. With people living in it. Yeah. yeah.
0: Um, be, be, before we have a tune, right? Yeah. I, um, who are a couple of the players that were in the house that you do you remember who particularly like that ignited something in you? You kind of thought,
2: yeah, uh, probably the the most uh, the most shocking, like the most uplifting and inspiring, like in the in the old fashioned sense of the word, awesome was a guy called Brendan mclinchy. I was completely awestruck when he sat down and started playing. Like that was that that was uh that opened the door to a whole new world, you know. Because I realised this this guy is not just poking away at a few tunes. This guy's an expert, like there's skill and power and imagination and philosophy and all going on in this fella's playing, you know. Up to then it had just been a bit of crack, you know. It's like, wow, this, this guy's different calibre altogether. So I had me one fella, uh, this bloke called Liam O'Hara, who now lives in Connemara? but he was a neighbour of my dad. He grew up in the same village as my dad, a lot younger, of course. Um, There was uh, two brothers, Tommy and Ted McGowan from Garcheen. There was um, two other brothers, Tommy and Eddie Corcoran, also from Garcheen. There was uh, visiting... People, I remember getting up one day and the whole Liverpool Cayley band. Well, I don't know was it the whole band, but it must have been at least seven or eight of them were in, asleep in the front room and you know on the floor and the sofa. And I remember walking into the room, I could see this big naked ass sticking up over the top of the sofa. <laughs> so I just shut the door and left. <laughs> but um, you know, um, I, I I can't think Do- now, but. There's a few of the people anyway. Uh,
0: would you do a chin from, sure. from that kind of period? So I'll need a second just to switch over yeah. the microphones here and just figure <laughs> out the.
2: Just thinking, I can I can hear, I can hear Brendan saying apples and winter. <laughs> He had a northern accent, like you, you know, and I thought it was so weird. And uh, I remember him saying, sound your ah You know, not sound your A, sound your ah <laughs> And he wore winkle pickers. Do you remember them pointed shoes? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I thought, oh, I don't like this guy, wearing winkle pickers. And then he started playing, and it's like, wow, this guy's a genius.
3: <laughs> <laughs>
2: so, uh, probably the... F- the first time I heard this tune, it's one of Ed Reeves, I play it a lot, but I probably heard it that day, the first time I heard Brendan. Should I just start up there? Tune called? It's called Mardaban Chapel. It was written by Ed Reevey who came from Cavern and spent most of his life in Philadelphia. And uh, I'd say in the early '60s, his tunes started to make their way into the the standard repertoire. Mm. Uh, so when I heard Brendan playing it at that time, it was probably considered a kind of a new tune, you know. But it's become pretty well known so uh,
0: so um
2: that sort of starts you on
0: sort of recognizing that you're able to pick out mm-hmm. playing Wh- where do you go from there in terms of your own sort of development like is what's well
3: the, you know i i because right, th-
0: so you, you start p- playing around and did, did you play around in the, the dance halls and
2: things yeah that we're talking yeah about? um i I used to play at sessions in pubs and i used to uh, you know my pe- my parents would bring me to places yeah. uh, and again it was not quite you know a lot of these places might not be ideal for a twelve year old or thirteen year old but because of the music, it was okay you know um, yeah. and yeah. my dad my dad being a cop people would relax when he was with me because if there was any problem about having a minor in there he would say well he's, his dad's a cop like what are we supposed to do You know?
0: You mentioned uh, I think um, it might be on your on the biography on your website about um, learning tunes from paper yeah. um, with your teacher and then kind of coming to the point where you realise yeah, that there's something else going on when you actually yeah. hear it
2: yeah, again, you see, my parents weren't musicians. So they couldn't really teach me much other than what they thought was really good and what they didn't think was really good, you know. And in their world, if you could dance to it, it was fine. And if you couldn't dance to it, it was hopeless, you know. That was the gist of it. So anyway, they they asked my teacher... If, I, if, they, if she could teach me some Irish tunes. Because I was, I was at the point where I could play a tune. But I was learning Christmas carols and, you know, happy birthday and stuff like that. Twinkle, twinkle, little star, you know. And um, my parents said, well, could you teach some Irish tunes? And, and she said, yeah, he's as well learning that as anything else. But I don't know any. So you'll have to get me a book. So they got me a book, it was called Alan's Irish Fiddler, and I brought it down to the teacher and she taught me, you know, whatever the first tune in the book was. And I'd I'd read my way through it and, you know, play it, more or less it was written, and of course I practised and... Got a bit better at it, but to my parents' ear, it was almost like the more I practiced, the worse it got and there was There was something wrong, badly wrong, but they they didn't know what, so they got the teacher up to the house, and they said they you know Kevin's playing. Saddle the pony and it sounds the way it does but this is a record of Michael Coleman or Sean Maguire or somebody playing saddle the pony and this is how we are used to hearing it so she said um, but that's not what's written in the book you know if you get me a book with that written in it I'll teach you to play it like that so that was that was a big revelation to me because I I didn't realise that wasn't what was in the book. Um, and I realised you have to kind of translate what's on the paper into a noise. Especially in Irish music, because the written Irish music is really like a pricey. You know, like a, like a a shortened, a, a telegram, as opposed to a conversation. Like when you get a telegram, you'd, you'd say, airport, Saturday, 10 a.m., Jack. You know? But if you were talking to the guy, you wouldn't say, airport, 10 a.m. You'd say, hey, this is Jack here. I'm flying in Saturday morning around 10 o'clock. Can you pick me up? You know? So the the Irish music I discovered... Is like that. It's like a telegram, and you have to make it into a sentence, and then you have to make it conversational, and you have to make the guy believe yeah It's not enough to just relay the message. You got to, you know, you got to relay. I really need this lift. It's important that you're there, and if you can't pick me up, then tell me because I'm gonna have to get someone else. You know.
0: So then you you start to learn tunes with your teacher, but you're. You're starting to feel your way into ornamenting, and
2: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. There was a guy, one of the guys who used to come to the house, Mart McMahon, great accordion player from Clare, fantastic accordion player. Uh, he also played the fiddle really well. And I said, you know, when I'm playing, it doesn't sound that good to me. And he says, how are you doing, grand, You know? I said, well, there's something wrong. And he says, well, you're not putting in any rolls. And I said, what's, what's the role? And he says, give me the fiddle. And he goes, he goes.
3: <laughs>
2: that's what I mean.
3: And I think, what
2: the hell was that? You know? He just seemed to throw his fingers at the string, and, the, and it kind of went, <laughs> 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 And that's the only lesson I ever had with regard to Irish music. This guy, shown, this accordion player, showed me on the fiddle how to play a role. It's like a wee, <laughs> like a wee shiver, almost, like you yeah, did there. Yeah, And I remember it took me ages to be able to do it. And I, I just held my fingers at the string, like he did, hoping that the sound would come out, but of course... And
0: then and then, and then you are it's calling on you to listen in a different way too, right? Because yeah. you're listening to these players and mm-hmm. really picking out, is it a role or is it something else, yes, exactly. right? So. Yeah,
2: it heightened. it heightened, I mean, first of all, it made me aware that what you see and what you hear are not necessarily the same thing, and and uh, it happens in, in everyday speech, like the number of times you hear people saying, uh, well, that's not what I said, and it actually is what they said, but when you read it, it comes off the page differently. Different words take on different uh, amounts of importance. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like, I mean, like sarcasm, you can sometimes say, well, that's funny, meaning that's not funny at all. That was horrible, you know. But S- if you write it down, it down, it's it's. he said it was funny. Mm-hmm. So, So then how
0: do you S- start playing out more um so in the in the dance clubs i'm interested in that sort of culture of the dance clubs in london and stuff that's a whole other sort of scene so who, who were you playing with and how did that start
2: well my dad my mom and dad used to go to these dance clubs fairly regularly and they'd bring me along and I was sometimes asked to sit in, when they, you know, when, the, like, you know, when I was really young, I only knew a few tunes, and and I might have to leave early, because, you know, that we'd, we'd stay till 10 o'clock, and then it was too late, I'd have to be brought home, you know, so they'd get me up to play for a half hour with them, and, you know, half the tunes I didn't know, but and they, they may be... Yeah. Well, he knows the, he knows the geese in the park play that one, you know, that kind of thing, you know. And this is <laughs> this would
0: be a Keeley band, so yeah. a, so a couple of accordions and
2: yeah, a couple of fiddles and flute. There was a probably the first group I played with was a, a group called Gossnergale in Hammersmith or oh, Victoria, yeah, Victoria. They had a dance hall in Victoria on Saturday nights, and we'd go up there. And there was a guy called Johnny Hines, a lovely flute player from from Moat. And he played the fiddle as well. And there was uh, a fiddler called John O'Shea, uh, whose family was from Kerry, but I'm not sure if he was born in Kerry or not. He grew up mostly in England. Um, Really good fiddler. Um, and a guy called Tommy McCarthy used to play the box and you know a few different musicians would be along. And it was it was a very f- uh, safe place to bring kids. Like there was no drink. I think it it might have been a semi-pioneer thing.
3: The
2: yeah, they I, I, I didn't advertise it that way, but most of the people there didn't drink. Mm-hmm. Or if they did, they'd go across the road to a pub and have a couple of pints. You know, but there was no bar in the place. It was like a church hall or something um and it wasn't very commercial was, uh, it, was it fun for you playing in that for an audience me. you weren't nervous or I, well i was a bit shy right. but, they, but they you know they were lovely people and they they were very encouraging like you were saying about your kids you know they, they were delighted this london kid is scraping away fiddle tunes and you know right. they're not gonna say no you can't play right. you know if it was inappropriate They'd steer me that way, but they'd never, they'd never make me feel it was inappropriate. So as you're getting older,
0: you mentioned about going off to college. Um, you know, what, were you, what were you doing for going to college? What were you thinking about for work? Um,
2: well, my A-levels weren't good enough. I applied for university and didn't get in. So I went to work in the stock exchange. And after working there for about a year, Doing
0: what?
2: I was in an office called Company Announcements, which was probably like a newsroom. In those days, you know, this would be about 1970, you know, computerization was brand new, really. We had punch cards, and these, this room with two or three big computers you know the size of two or three fridges put together probably about a hundredth of the power of your phone today you know but anyway in those days anything that was done that would affect the price of the share had to be announced to the stock exchange first before it was made public uh and normally that was a formality. Uh, occasionally it was important, but sometimes it was just they'd post a letter to the newspaper. You know, say, say Woolworths was getting a new CEO or something. That might affect the price of the shares. Yeah, you know, yeah. So they would send a letter to us at 2 o'clock. It'd be stamp, date stamped, you know, two o'clock. And then they'd send uh, the letter to all the press at 2.01. You know, so it was just a formality. But occasionally it was important that we knew about it in advance because uh, it might cause a big flurry with the with the market, you know. So my employer was the stock exchange. It wasn't like I wasn't trading or anything. Mm-hmm. In fact, I wasn't allowed to trade because I had all this inside information mm-hmm. so, so then what
0: um how do you move kind of f- from that to
2: well um while I was working there I was contacted by the the the, uh, the body that I applied to university through I forget what it was called it's kind of a clearinghouse yeah, and um this new course was opening up and given my previous application and my present job, was I interested in the course? And it was a, it was a I forget it was, basically it was a business course uh, in Hull, in Yorkshire. Uh, it was a new course, would I be interested? So I said, yeah. So I went and did it for a year and then I left. Mm. But I'm meeting some of my classmates in October. Fifty years ago, we haven't. Mostly, we haven't met yeah. since. You know.
0: Uh, when you left,
2: right? Did you? Is that
0: when you went to Ireland? uh God. When I. I left. Mean, I know I'm kind of asking you to be very precise about yeah. things that happened a long time. ago what I'm trying to get to is just, you know, how does your plan start to develop, and you start to think, "I'm going to go and try and well, make a I, go with this."
2: I, uh, I played in. Uh, I played in a in a folk group. I was still playing in Kaylee bands, you know. Even at college, I'd come home for the weekend or whatever, or for the the holidays, and I'd I'd go back and play in the bands. Um, and I was also playing in folk group when I when I was about fifteen, sixteen. I met this kid in school. A couple of years younger than me, who asked about the fiddle. He saw me carrying a fiddle. Um, and it turned out he played mandolin himself and he was interested in folk music now at the time i didn't know i was playing folk music i just never called it that to me folk music was john byers and julie felix and you know simon garfunkel these american people with guitars singing songs mostly that i didn't find very interesting um I had no idea that Joe Heaney was a folk singer and that that all these Irish lads down in the pub were singing folk songs, valley of Nockonua and and Crooked Jack and McAlpine's Fusiliers and all that. I had no idea that was a folk song, you know. So uh, this guy, his name was Paddy Bush and he's the brother of uh, Kate Bush who later became really famous. But he introduced me to two folk singers called Dave and Tony Arthur, who lived across the road from the school, so we'd go and spend lunchtime with them sometimes, <coughs> and they started bringing me to folk clubs, English folk clubs, which was a whole world I didn't know existed. So I was going to the Irish pubs on Friday night, and I'd go to the English folk club on Saturday night, and I'd go to the Cayley Band on Sunday night, and and would Some nights I'd go to the Marquis Club in London, which was a Mm -hmm. famous rock place. It wasn't called a rock back then. I can't remember what we called it, but a lot of blues and blues-influenced band. Rory Gallagher and Taste used to play there on a regular basis. Jethro Tull, before they made records, they used to play there. Joe Cocker... um, and lots of people that you might know, Duster Bennett, Joanne Kelly, uh, Ten Years After. So I was listening to that kind of music as well. And, like, I remember... Like, I mentioned Brendan McGlinchey having a huge impact on me. Um, I'd already been hit by this guy, Michael Coleman. I remember listening to one of his records one day. I'd listened to his records a thousand times. You know, I was hearing them before... I could speak, you know, because my father had all these records. Or my parents had all these records. But I remember listening to it one day, and all of a sudden, it sounded so different to me. I wasn't just hearing a bunch of notes and a fiddle tune. I used the word philosophy earlier, and I I felt, you know, this guy is telling me his whole world view through these tunes, like on a very kind of philosophical level. Now, he wasn't telling me specifically, like, uh, I like to travel, but I don't like uh, eating in restaurants. I, you know, it wasn't specific. Like, but I could hear there's, a, there's a, an emotion in this. That I never realized before was possible in music. There's an emotional side to music, a philosophical side to music. And of course, it's we're talking instrumental music, there's no words. You know, he wasn't saying, she loves you. I want to hold your hand. You know? He was just making noises. But just like when a baby cries or laughs, you know, there's a He's not saying anything, but there's there's uh, there's an emotional trigger at work here, and I really felt that. Like yesterday, it never even crossed my mind. Today, I heard it loud and clear. It's almost like something went pop in my head. Now I was. I was probably at an age where I was maturing anyway, looking at everything in a more mature way. But that that little instant with Coleman made me start thinking about music a different way. And then I saw, like, like with Coleman it was just a record, but with Brendan I was watching a guy do it. You know, in front of me, sitting across the table from me. He's, um, and then the next thing that ha- hit me like that was Jimi Hendrix. First time I heard Jimi Hendrix. The same thing, it's like, the, and again it, was the, it wasn't his songs, it was the playing, the instrumental side of his... Like I, I remember early on, early on, that time when, my, when we brought the teacher up to the house to hear the music the way the parents wanted it to, to sound we played a bunch of different fiddlers to her Killoran, and Coleman, Morris, all the great. Shaw Maguire we played Are you familiar with Shaw Maguire? No He was a big figure in the 50s, 60s, northern guy uh, ha- ha- Had um, connections with Cavan, but I think he'd probably say he was from Belfast um, A very strong, a brilliant player, like one of the greatest, Um, a very strong northern style. And a lot of the northern qualities are a bit closer to Scottish music. And a lot of the Scottish music is a bit closer to classical playing. So he had a very strong... A lot of his attributes, you would, you would use the same terms to describe a classical player. Great tone, great control, great command of the instrument. Um, so we presumed she'd go for him right away rather than these uh, kind of hillbilly types, you know, <laughs> these rural, untutored types. But funnily enough, the one she picked out instantly... Like she kind of let the, you know, she was talking about the curtains and chatting with my mother about how to make a blouse or something, I don't know. Uh, And all of a sudden she just stopped, like she interrupted the conversation, saying, Now who's that playing? And it happened to be Michael Coleman. And she says, Oh, yeah, now that chap, he really finds the soul of his instrument. And, you know, just as a phrase, that was really bizarre, like I didn't know, I I was going to a Catholic school, like I didn't know instruments had souls. Uh, I wasn't sure anyone had soul. like was, you know, it was a bit of a mysterious thing anyway, but they were telling us we all have a soul, but I, no one ever said an instrument had a soul, so that was really bizarre, and this guy could find it, you know. So just that phrase stopped me in my tracks, and of course I understood in a while, kind of what she was getting at. But um that kind of uh that kind of emotion or whatever you want to call it spiritual aspect uh has always been important to me, whether I'm listening to an orchestra or whether I'm listening to some croaky blues singer who's only got five strings on his guitar, you know um would you be able
0: to play us a tune, like a Michael Coleman tune? That would. Do you have something to hand, or is that? Well, I, ca- I, ca- I
2: can't really impersonate
0: him. No, I, I don't mean impersonate him. No.
2: Well, probably his most famous tune is. Uh oh yeah, I know. I know a nice one. Mm-hmm. I learned. I learned this from Michael Coleman. It's called "The Sailor on the Rock." It's a well-known tune. I didn't learn it from him initially. In fact, it's the first tune I learned just from hearing it at a session. A fella called Con Curtin and a fella called Edmund Murphy played it one night. And I went home and I found I could play it, just from hearing them play it. So I was thrilled. That's the first time that ever happened to me. Uh, but then in later years, I heard a recording of Michael Coleman play it, so I readapted it.
0: How do you um, how do you make the transition from playing for fun to thinking that this might be a possible career? How does how does that happen?
2: Um, Well, I came to America. So so this is skipping, I guess. A whole is this skipping a a whole section from? Um, So so let's go. I left I left college, and I wasn't sure what to do. And I played in a couple of folk groups and played in bands, so, so I was getting a little bit of money through playing, but I, I you know, I needed a job. Um, but then I was asked to play in Denmark uh, in a theatre. They were doing an Irish play, and they wanted some Irish music. And they asked around. It was a six-month job. They asked some of the Irish musicians in london but most of them had regular jobs and families and couldn't go away for six months to a foreign country you know um but i was kind of at a loose end so i said yeah
0: and this was the hostage by yeah. brandon Bean, right
2: yeah mm-hmm. yeah which doesn't really have any traditional music in it but they didn't know that <laughs> so myself and a fellow called pj crutty flute player from Clare, who was living in london at the time the two of us went off And it was a great, uh, a fantastic experience. It wasn't an easy experience. The play was in Danish, everything was in Danish. They all, most of them could speak pretty good English, but when we were actually working, it was all in Danish. Um, Occasionally they'd stop and translate something for us, particularly. But a lot of the time we were kind of shooting in the dark because we didn't know what was going on, but gradually we got in on it. And we had to learn a different way of playing, you know, playing on cue, playing, you know, in a a theatrical way, you know, slower, sadder tunes and happy, brisk tunes. And, uh, you know, we had to modify things and, and think in a way I hadn't really done before. Because, you know, in the Cayley bands and at the sessions, you just batter out the tune. Someone says, uh, play a few jigs now, you know. But this made me think in a different way. And, of course, the discipline of being there at a certain time and, you know, rehearsing. I'd never really done that before. Um, so that was cool. And I got paid a lot of money. At the, you know, at the time it felt like a lot of money. Did that for six months and then I came back and I went to Ireland. It was summertime, you know, I went to the flan I went to the Willie Week, and because had all this money, you know, didn't know what to do. And I was half thinking I might move over to Ireland. Uh, but I met Arlo Guthrie. Are you familiar with Arlo? Yeah. So I met Arlo Guthrie in Clare and we paddled around for a few days and uh, after that meeting it was suggested I come to America. I got a letter a few months you know a few weeks later saying you should come to America and you know if you want to come October would be a great time because that's when the trees around here change color and it's really spectacular and um, and we're making a new record. <laughs> so and this was in New England. Oh, in yeah. Massachusetts, yeah. So the trees bit didn't interest me as much as making a new record. So I, I said, uh, geez, that's great. I've gone over to America. So and had,
0: had you recorded anything at all at this time, yourself?
2: I don't think so. Yeah, yeah.
0: So, so what was that like? You arrive in Massachusetts, and do you know what's in store for
2: you? No, no. I mean, I I arrived in New York and th- thinking I'd get a subway to Massachusetts. Or some, you know, I didn't realize it was hours away. I had no idea the size of this country. <laughs> yeah, the I got off the plane. I sat there, thinking, "Well, what do I do now?" It was like six, seven o'clock in the evening. I tried to get Arlo's phone number, you know, called director of inquiries, and um, they said there was nothing listed. I thought, God, I thought everyone in America had a phone.
0: You must know him. He's Woody's son.
2: <laughs> yeah, I probably said that, you know, because I didn't realise that that whole concept of, you know, famous people aren't listed, you know. <laughs> so uh, I was sitting there wondering what the hell I do you now and joe Burke walked by <laughs> said oh joe how are you so within an hour i was up in the bronx playing with Andy get who is another one of these great fiddlers that i always hoped i might meet sometime so that worked out and then i was pounding around with joe for a few sorry i was pounding around with joe for a few days and uh i'm i managed to track down i i found out Arlo's manager was in New York City, and I, I went to his office, and then he contacted Arlo, and I I went up. I, I met Arlo's sister, who was also in New York City, and she drove me up. She was gone up, so she drove me up there. And, um, then when I was in Arlo's house, uh, we hung around for a week or something, and then he says, uh, we're going to, uh, going to Hollywood to make a record, if you want to come. So I said, sure. So went there and watched them r- record, and did a couple little, couple of little bits myself. Um, but I was watching, like Ry Kuda was on that record, Jesse Davis, Jim Keltner, Claudia Lanier, I think might have been doing backup. I met Claudia Lanier and a few other... I met a couple of guys out of this new band that became known as the Eagles. Um, and Jim Keltner, being a legendary drummer yeah, as well, yeah, from
0: a yeah. session drummer, and every uh, probably every Ry Kuda album from that era. Probably, yeah. yeah. I'd
2: I'd, no, I'd never heard of him. I'd yeah. never heard of Ry oh. In fact, before we left Massachusetts, Alan says, "Have you got any thoughts about any ideas about playing the fiddle with, in the studio?" And I said, "Not really." Except, I said, I, I often thought what it might sound like with a slide guitar. Because I'd heard Robert Johnson, the blues guy, on the radio. And I loved what he was doing with the slide guitar. And I just thought, I wonder how that would work with a fiddle, you know. So I said this to Arlo, and he said, his, his uh, colleague at the time was a bloke called John Pillar. Another guitarist and kind of producer, semi-producer. Good buddy, you know. Uh, so he looked over at John and said, "We should get Rye. We'd we'll give Rye a Call." And John goes, "Yeah, oh well, definitely, yeah." And I remember saying to them, "Who's he?" And I said, "Oh, he goes plays guitar." And I said, "Well, is he any good?" Because I didn't want a messer, like you know. <laughs> said, is he any good? Which now, of course, is one of the most embarrassing things I've ever said. About twenty minutes later we were sitting around and this music came on the speakers, you know. They were playing records most of the time in those days. This record came out and I said, God almighty who's that? And the two boys started laughing. They said, That's the bloke you were asking about. Is he any good? <laughs> So I became a fan instantly. Like it was, it was that um, album, "Into the Purple Rain." Into the
0: Purple Valley. Yeah, into the Purple Valley. Yeah. Ah, that's that's. <laughs> uh, there's so many, you know. And you know, what's interesting about the album as well. There's a, there's a few kind of songs that he collected in there as well. Like uh, that are older songs, and he he does a couple of. I think he does a Washington Phillips song as well, like an old blues song, and yeah. Fantastic and mandolin playing Yeah. So you record a few little sections with Arlo Guthrie for yeah. this album, which is, is it Last of the Brooklyn Cowboys? Yeah. 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 Um, and, and, and then what? So take me through how much um, longer are you in America before you.
2: Oh, not long, a couple of months. And then you head back to Ireland. Ireland, is that we right? Went back to Ireland, yeah. And I saw those guys, you know, they likes of Ry Coder, Ar- Arnold, David Lindley and a few of few their bodies, you know. And um, I realised that they were dealing with their folk music, like Woody's songs, those blues songs, old songs. Like in Ireland, what would the equivalent be? You know, sad songs, immigration, skibbereen um
0: you you mentioned Joe heaney earlier yeah, on I think about kind of that songs. you know or like um the cliffs of. there's a paddy the are there's a paddy tany song mm-hmm. version of um the lowlands of holland i don't know mm-hmm. if you're familiar with it which is in, in irish and it's oh, one of the most that. beautiful things i've ever heard yeah. and that kind of crystallizes something for me when i first heard that and it was only like a couple of years ago i heard it i just it came up at random and I was standing in my kitchen and I was completely floored by the beauty of his voice. And yeah. uh, and I don't understand Irish, but it was <sighs> amazing.
2: So. Yeah, so I was wondering, would that ever happen in Ireland? That you take the rocks of barn and put... Slide guitar on it, and 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 Jim Keltner playing the drums, and and some R and B keyboard guy, and backing vocals. Would that ever happen? In a, you know, why couldn't you do that with Skibbereen? You know, it's a great song. The Rocks of Barnes, great song. Kind of mysterious. There's all these great songs, and and yet they don't seem to cross over. It's like. The solo guy, the Joe Heaney guy, stands up sings. Nobody plays. How do you do that? You know. They can do it. Arlo can do it. Rye can do it. Uh, the Birds did it. You know. All these different people did it. I wonder if that had ever happened in Ireland. And then, of course, I was never as interested in the songs as the tunes, and I was thinking, you know, that could happen with the music too, you know, um, and I I heard a lot of, you know, a lot of people were beginning to play guitar alongside Irish music and it, it wasn't working, it wasn't good, and I didn't know why, I, I couldn't play guitar anyway, but then I started to hear Now that guy's making it work, and that you know, it kind of sounds okay there. It was okay to, for the first part, but he shouldn't have done that in the second part. That's quite great, you know. And and then the bazooki appeared, and you know the, this different approach started. And of course, I'm talking yeah. about the likes of Andy Irvin and Dawn Loney and Johnny Moynan and all that crowd, you know. And of course, before long, you know, just a few years later, I was in the Body Band, and we were doing that exact thing. We were putting we were putting a rhythm section to this Sligo maid and the for collector and Bonnie Kate and you know all these traditional tunes mm-hmm. that I you'd hear in the pub sessions, but with an uh, with an orchestrated backup rhythm section. You know,
0: when when you started working with the Bothy Band and and. Well, I'm I'm jumping ahead here because I know you toured with Christy Murr and Jimmy yeah. Faulkner for a bit and yeah. you did a, a lot I ca- of other... I came,
2: ba- I came back from America and realised if, if if this... Mu- either I, I have to decide, either I work as a musician like the people I saw in America or I realise music is just a hobby to me and I need to make a living doing something that's... So I did something else. I had a couple of jobs. Uh, worked in a record shop for a couple of years. I worked as an office manager in a place, um, and then I got a call from Christy Moore, saying, "I'm leaving Plank's. I'm forming my own band. Would you be interested?" And I said, "Yeah." And he said, "Well, it'll mean moving to Ireland." because I moved, when I left America, I went back to England. He said, let me move to Ireland. So I said, okay. So I went over and played with Christie for a year or two, and from Christie, joined the Butty band. Uh, they Tommy Peoples was with, was with them. And then he left the band, and they asked me if I'd join, and I said, well, I have to talk it out with Christie, you know, because the only reason I'm here is because of Christie. And Christy was great. You know, Christy said, "Yeah, you'd be mad to turn that down," because he was a big fan of the Buddy Band already. He introduced the Buddy Band to me.
0: And, and how, when you're touring with with Christy, and was it Jimmy Faulkner? Yeah, yeah. So, what? Um, how did that work in terms of making a living? Are you playing folk clubs and things like yeah. that, and just yeah, splitting the money kind of thing? Well,
2: Christy would pay us. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, so he'd basically employed you, kind of? Yeah, we were, we were his side men. Right. You know, it was Christie's gig. Right. And if it was a smallish gig, it'd be Christie and me. If it was a bit bigger, it'd be Christie and Jimmy and me. And if it was a big gig, it'd be Christie, Jimmy, Declan McNeilis, maybe on bass, maybe on acoustic guitar. Right. And if it was a f- full electric gig, big gig, we'd have Robbie Brennan playing drums as well. Um, was it was it fun? Oh yeah, it's great. Yeah, it's great. Um, and Christy was great, you know. And, and Christy, uh, the way Christy treated me was fantastic, you know. He he, uh, he was always. I was going to say gracious, you know. That that's probably the best word. But at the same time, he was, he. he uh, there was a lot of uh, lampooning each other. You know, <laughs> he would often introduce me as Mary, <laughs> Mary Burke on the fiddle, and stuff like that. You know, there was a lot of play acting going on. But basically, he was great. And when it, when it, when the body band asked me, you know, he he was very uh, encouraging and said, "Yeah, you you should," because he knew. Playing tunes was more. See, when I was playing with Christy, it'd be backing up songs, eighty percent of the time, and twenty percent music instrumental stuff, which is what I was really into. But then with the body Band, the percentages reversed. You know, it was nearly all instrumental st- uh, songs, with one or two songs thrown in, mm-hmm. instrumental pieces. With you know, we we do in each each half if we had ten pieces of music there'd be seven instrumentals and two or three songs yeah. you know
3: yeah. so
2: could,
0: could we do another tune and then I'll, yeah. I'll talk a bit about the body band is that okay is this okay
2: yeah. for you time wise yeah. i know i'm taking up a lot of your
0: time but i'm that loving one. this conversation
2: i could play i could play you a, a tune from the body band that i've just record re-recorded yeah what, what's
0: this
2: one morrison's jig okay I just re- re-recorded it with uh, John Carty. Do you know John? I, I know of him. I, I would, I do you know Maggie? She's in, she's in. She's Australia now. His daughter, Maggie. Uh,
0: I do. We,
2: we we interviewed her at the at the. Oh yeah, the cool. Well, her dad and I just recorded these two tunes. So I'll give them a lash. Are we ready to go? Getting round a few corners there, but you get the idea anyway.
0: Well, you're you're talking there about getting round a few corners, which is <coughs> interesting because I, uh, when I was looking at um, I was looking at some of the the, the description on your website about um this notion of nyah, <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> which um which got me thinking about about uh, that's an that's another thing about um translating, right? It's a it's a kind of verbal translation of characteristics of playing, yeah. right? It's just really interesting. There's a lovely list of words you have in there, but
2: yeah, like in in
0: what, what, let me ask you a question about that. What what is that? I don't know. <laughs> yeah, but you know it when you hear it.
2: Kinda, you know, like in jazz music, you know, you often hear them talking about swing. It don't mean a thing if it ain't got that swing, and it it's it's nebulous. you know some people play a tune and it makes you go "Wow," and then other people play the same tune just as well, but it doesn't make you go Wow. and like in Spanish music, the flamenco music, they have a word "duende," and it's the same kind of thing. And, you know, soul singers, some of of those guys have soul and some of them don't, and uh, where does it come from? I don't don't know, I don't know what it is, and I used to hear some of the old traditional players talk about the nyeh, you know, he has the nyeh, and it's, it's like, okay. (laughs) Another fella said something that I really like He says, you have to get the music off of the ground It doesn't matter how high off of the ground But you've got to get it off of the ground
0: (laughs) So when when you're approached You start playing with the Bothy band, right? And they've already um, had um, Tommy Peoples as a fiddle player Did you come in then thinking... um, uh, that you had a particular imprint you wanted to make, or were you just coming in to see how you fit in? Yeah. What, what's it like rehearsing that? Can you can you paint a picture for me of kind of getting together with those with those guys to to rehearse? What was that like?
2: Um. Well, initially, there was hardly any rehearsing. They they'd already recorded one album. They'd been playing with Tommy, so they had a set list, you know, a, re- a repertoire, and, which I didn't know. Um, and when they approached me first, they asked, they said Tommy, they said that they had a few gigs, I think it was four gigs over a weekend, and Tommy couldn't do them. Could I do them? I said, well, if I'm free, I'll do them, if you think I'll be able to. But I said, I don't know, I don't have your record, like, I don't know the stuff. <clears throat> I had seen them play once, maybe twice. Um, so, of course, I knew a lot of the tunes. I knew the Green Groves of Air and the Flowers of Red Hill and the Cash Jig. I knew a lot, of the, but I didn't know the arrangements. So I said, you know, I'll, and they were saying, oh, you'll be fine, you'll be fine. And <laughs> <someone> <laughs> like, I'll do my best, you know, I'm not going to see you stuck if you need a fiddle player for the weekend. And, uh, you know, I cleared it with Christy, we weren't playing anywhere, so it wasn't, there was no conflict. I said, yeah, I'd be happy, but I said, I don't know how good I can do it, you know. So they said, "Ah, oh, you'll be grand. We'll tell you when to start and when to stop. And basically, I just played my way through the tunes, and if I didn't know a tune, I'd say, well, I don't know that one and say, I'll oh, we'll skip that one and join in the next one, you know. <clears throat> so it was kind of thrown together. But it, after the second or third night, they said to me, you know, Tommy's not coming back. Do you fancy staying on? So I said, OK. But again, I left out to Christy. And, and who was...
0: Sorry you're saying sort of they like was it a cooperative or was there somebody who was running the show was it
2: it was a it was a cooperative but at the time it was Matt and Donald who initially asked me to do that weekend Aye. and i don't know who it was tommy tommy wasn't coming back it was prob- it was probably the two of them um, they they'd obviously talked amongst themselves, saying, "Should we ask him to stay on? We need a fiddler." I, I, I'm, I'm, I mean, I, I, I'm only guessing, but I can't imagine it happening any other way. Mm. They said, "Oh, yeah, he's fine. We'll ask him. And if we don't like him, we'll throw him out later." <laughs> I imagine that's what happened. You know, so.
0: So I, I get the impression. I, I don't know. I, I don't know, but I've I always get the impression there are quite strong personalities in that. Yeah. In that group, was it? Was it
2: an easy kind of? No, wasn't easy. No. Work. No. No. Uh, no, it was chaos a lot of the time. Um, the simplest thing was chaotic, you know, like to decide in what time to leave or where to eat or when to eat what to eat you know (laughs) everything was a major challenge Um, but musically um, Matt Paddy and I would basically select tunes we were sometimes referred to as the front line you know the melody players and then Michal, Donal and Triana would come up with these arrangements, and it was it was probably Donal was the biggest voice, followed by Michal, followed by Triana um when it came to the chord structure and rhythm structure. But it was swapped around. But Donald Donal was definitely the mu- the main musical mind, you know. Um, and you know, we we'd say, "What about this jig? Can you? What do you think of this? We could, can you do anything with that?" And uh, you know, they listen to it and someone would say, what about what about trying it in a different key? Or could we, after that, could we go into this key? Like the that rhythm is really nice, but." It, It'd work better on the guitar if we did it in this key, something like that. And then we, so we, we'd, we'd say, we can't really play that tune in a different key, but we could play this other one in that new key. You know, this would work. Mm-hmm. So we'd switch from one to the other, and you know, maybe if we, if we, if we have the pipes play that, and not you know, keep the fiddle out of it till the second tune or the second time through, and just kind of build it up, trial and error. Because it was all new, no one, no one had really done that, so there were no guidelines for us to follow. We just worked it out for ourselves, and we, we, we'd play, we'd play things that we thought were great. I mean, you know, we hoped people would like it, but to be honest, there was, there was, uh, there was an element of we don't really care if they like it or not because we think it's great. And a lot of people didn't like it, you know, it was a bit too new, but you know, the the band kind of set the bar for a lot of bands that came after, Um, but by the time that realisation was sinking in, we'd already broken up, you know. Uh, But... um... It's it's
0: fascinating to me, even just talking to younger players in in Australia when we're interviewing people there. Uh, how many people cite the Bossy Band? It's just yeah, Planksteen yeah. and the Bossy Band are two oh, yeah, perennial left a, left influences. The oh, oh, right, yeah, geez, geez. yeah. So I remember borrowing a cassette of After Hours Live in Paris um, from our local library. It was one of the few <laughs> cassettes that I actually wanted to listen to, <laughs> and being like stopped in my tracks by the very opening with the whistle and the beginning of the cash jig. You know, there's somebody's whistling like a whoosh, like a sort of wolf whistle. Oh, yeah. And it's an amazing opening and the G that kind of dun, 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 dun. it's 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 full of kind of malevolent intent. You know,
2: it's yeah. Malevolent intent is true. It's, it's hilarious.
0: So so one of the things about that album, there's, there's um, the version of the death of Queen Jane um, has a harmony line in the fiddle, which is one of the most beautiful harmony lines I've ever ever heard. And it's a sort of you kind of I think it's a descending scale and then an ascending scale. It's yeah. incredible, or an ascending scale and a descending scale. I'm seeing that twice, so I can edit in which one's right. But <laughs> it goes down and then it goes But it's down. gorgeous.
2: <laughs>
3: well, That's I true. have
2: to I have to say I'm sure I didn't come up with it. <laughs> I'm sure it's not my line. I just played it. Probably Dawn will have told me what to play. Um, and so, how how long were you in the band? It was like three years, maybe something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah.
0: And 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 that's how you became friends with uh, with Mihal. Yeah,
2: right. Yeah, we met through the band. And then when it was winding down, we well before it was winding down, we we would often play as a duet, as a duo, because. You know, the band was often asked to play places uh, and and often we couldn't go. The band couldn't do it for one reason or another. Um, but we, we'd say, we'd sometimes say, well, you know, we could send some of the band. You know, maybe it was a, a, a school in, in Kells was opening where Michal and... Trina grew up, and uh, could the Bussy band play? And for whatever reason they'd say no, but um, I'm sure Mihal and Trina would go, and maybe they could bring Matt or Kevin or so. So that kind of thing would happen. We'd, we'd break off in twos and threes and do things. And then Mihal and I ended up living in the same house, and I had a car. And it just became very convenient for Michal and Kevin to do something together because we lived together and I was driving and, you know, if they wanted something in Clonmel... And do yeah, we'd got the two of us to do it. And we developed this repertoire because, you know, we couldn't play and a lot of the band stuff we couldn't play. So we developed a repertoire and then we made our own record and we went on tour as a duo when the band wasn't working and we went to... Brittany several times, and we came over here. And uh, one year we came here, came to Portland, and the band was nearly finished then, and we just decided to stay here.
0: What What was he like as a as a friend?
2: Yeah. Um. Well, very quiet guy. Um. uh like he, he was a really good friend and as a musical companion uh excellent you know um but he was he was uh, he he tended to be withdrawn at times and uh sometimes a bit morose you know uh sometimes you get you get the impression there was this dark cloud hanging over me hall and wherever he'd go that cloud would go too you know but I haven't said that at times he was very funny as well you know uh quite intense musically in the studio especially he uh, he was great in the studio uh, Which is an environment I'm not that comfortable with, I'm a lot better now because it you know because of technology, things aren't as tedious as they used to be back then um but he was great in the studio and he he didn't mind these ten twelve fourteen hour sessions listening to the same thing over and over again uh whereas i I tended to be uh uh I'd get to the point where I was just bored with it and and, and I thought, where are we going with this? You know, how f- how far can we push it? Uh
3: You you're
0: talking about doing take after take of something yeah. and re-listening and re listening and yeah. and working on tape as well, which is not yeah. easy. <laughs>
2: yeah, and there was no there was no um, mixed memory. If you thought if, you know, we'd listen to it and think, you know, the 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 second line of that third verse, the voice comes in a bit too strong. So we'd have to go back and remix the whole lot just to bring down those three words in the voice. Or so the the guitar tone changes. You know, we'll have to EQ just that little bit. So we 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 would really micromanage it to a large extent. Um and Michal had a lot more staying power for that a lot more stamina mm. for that kind of thing than i did
0: did you miss the band when it when it broke up or did, was Not it really. was it you were kind of ready for it
2: yeah yeah um in some ways yeah but in other ways no you know it was, it was uh it was kind of chaotic you know so i i didn't miss that on the other hand, it was kind of exciting. And, you know, fiddle fiddling guitar uh, couldn't generate the same kind of excitement. But we had a go at it. <laughs> we we had our own thing going, you know, which was great. So
0: so then w- when you start playing with, with Michal and you're doing these gigs and then you're, you come to the States, um, is there a sense that you're able to assert more of your own style again, then no. rather than being in the band?
2: No, I, I, um, like when Michal and I played in the Butty band, it was we were playing with everyone else, and then when we were, when it was just the two of us, everyone else wasn't there, we, we would play in much the same as the way we would, anyway. Uh, but obviously, I couldn't stop after the second reel and let the flute take over. I, I had to play the next reel myself. But other than that, you know, the actual playing—it was—it was just right. I played the way I play, and that was it. And Michal did the same thing. You know, we obviously adapted things, but kind of philosophically, it wasn't like, well, there's this attitude. For the duet gigs and that attitude for the band gigs, it was yeah. just get up there and play. So,
0: was your first album Promenade? Is that the one you recorded the first Michal? with me? With me, and I, yeah. And I yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah.
2: And then we did Portland when we got here. And That's all we ever did. We only did the two. Mm-hmm.
0: Um, uh, how did you feel about ending up in Portland? I mean, it's did, was it sort of accidental?
2: yeah
0: yeah. 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 Um, what, what appealed to you about it
2: well uh, w- we, uh, the way the, uh, the itinerary was we were to be in Portland one night but there was a petrol shortage and you couldn't buy petrol except every second day and to get the petrol on that second day You had to go down to the garage at like seven or eight in the morning and queue up for maybe an hour or two to get one tank of gas and then you couldn't get another tank of gas till two days later so those conditions just didn't work for touring especially here in the west where the distances are quite big one tank of gas wouldn't get you that far maybe you could get to the next gig but you couldn't get back so our two got all screwed up. So we ended up coming to Portland a day or two early because Michal remembered this American couple that he met back in Kells and he, he said, I think they live in Portland. Because uh, we had no clue what we were going to do when we got to Portland a day or two early. There's no gig to go to, you know. So he, he he says, I might have their number. So he found their number somewhere, in his diary. or Called him up and they said, yeah, come on. So we came over, got to Portland in the wee hours. I remember one or two in the morning. We drove from Southern Oregon somewhere. And uh, we were driving from about Salem, I'd say, on empty. I, I was driving, I think, God, we're coming in on fumes, you know, if we break down. We and I remember I pulled off the freeway, I-5, and the Everett exit. I thought, well, we must be close now. I, but again, I had no idea how big Portland was. But we got to the place anyway and slept on the floor in this tiny house. And uh, it turns out the guy of the couple was uh, involved in running the gig. And he had a little music shop, and he remembered me whole well, and he was delighted to have us there, and you know And we stayed in Portland for four or five days that time, instead of the one night. And we got to meet people who were interested in Irish music and uh, lots of nice people in a nice place, you know. Uh, and we had to come back here to do these gigs that we missed, that we couldn't get to. So we came back a few months later and based that tour from Portland. And by that time it was obvious the band was done, so we had no reason to rush back. So we just thought we'll we'll hang out here. We had a place to stay, and we had uh, friendly people around, supportive people, and I thought, I said, you know, the, the 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 guy who set up that tour was absolutely hopeless. I thought, I bet I could do as well myself. I'm not an agent, but... So I started calling places, trying to get gigs. And for a long time, it wasn't working. But finally, we we got a few gigs. And uh, it started to move a bit then. So we just just stayed hung around, you know. There was no kind of master plan. Just (laughs) following our nose, really, doing what was convenient at the time. So I'm still here waiting for something to turn up. Basically, forty years later. But uh, uh, it um,
0: was it? Did it become easier to make a living? Yeah. From yeah. from playing Irish music. Yeah. yeah. And part of that was probably at least in part due to bands like the Body Band, right? And the, and the profile. Of
2: the profile, the profile of the Body Band helped us. Yeah. Mm. Like I remember going out on the road to do a bunch of gigs. And I hadn't spent all the money from the previous bunch of gigs. And I remember thinking, wow, this this is big time. (laughs) Because usually, usually I'd I'd spend all the money and I still had, you know, I don't have a gig for till next week. Like, did you you ever hear that country song, there's too much month at the end of the money? (laughs) That's how my life was most of the time. And I remember the end of the month came and I still had some money left. And I was going out to earn more. And it's like, wow, it's brilliant.
0: (laughs) America's clearly the place. (laughs) Uh, Can we do another tune? Would you do another
2: tune? I was was thinking about... um... You know, I... After living here for a few years, Michal and I stopped playing together. He got involved in a a group called Night Noise, kind of founded his own group called Night Noise. And I started playing around with different people. There was a a group of uh, Americans um, that played different kinds of music, American music, Latin American music, Scandinavian music. Um, We formed a group called Open House. We found we had similar tastes in different kinds of folk music. So that was kind of like an international band. Um, And I also, I was good friends with Johnny Cunningham, Scottish fiddler, and we started a band called the the Celtic Fiddle Festival, which was a group of three fiddlers and and an accompanist. Um, And I also started playing a lot with a guy here in Portland called Cal Scott, who's a great musician, great guitar player. And when we met, he, was, he, he, used, he used to, and still does quite a lot of music for TV documentaries. And he was doing a documentary about the troubles in the north of Ireland and thought there was a place in it for some traditional music, but he didn't know much about Irish music and asked me to give him a hand. And after working on that... He said, "You're playing some together." So we started playing, and I, I'd uh, play him a few tunes, and he'd come up with a few ideas about how he would play it. And I'd say, "Well, you know, this, that really works well, but this is, uh, you know, normally someone would play play it like this." Have you listened to the fellow called Archie McLean. Have a, Have you listened to the way Michal does it? I used to play that with Michal and you can get a few ideas from that. And so we kind of built up a way of playing between ourselves. That was really nice, um, and uh, as well as being a great musician, he's a great composer and arranger, and he wrote this tune that's uh, um, a French-sounding waltz. Like he, he wrote it in the style of the popular ballroom music in Paris from the twenties and thirties, uh, and it's called Paris Nights. It sounds like this. <laughs> On the phone the other day, you mentioned about London, and we've spoken a little bit about it today. Uh, I did a record with a great electric guitar player called John Brennan, and um, one of the things we did was a, a, a song called London Town, and it's a song that I wrote together with Cal Scott, who wrote that waltz i just played. Um, and uh, you might find it interesting, because it, it's, it's the story of people of my parents' generation, people who left Ireland, moved to London, settled there. For a lot of them it was hard, but they, they had the music, and for a lot of them that music was a great source of comfort. Uh, and that's basically what the song's about. So you might enjoy that. Uh, it's a kind of a rocked-up version. Do you sing it? I do. Yeah, I'm the I'm just singer. Do you only sing it now? Ah, uh, all right. Yeah, what the hell? I'm not much of a singer. You might not. You might not. Um, yeah. In fact, I'm, I'm not a good singer at all. But, uh, I like the song. <laughs> so I'll give you the song. Uh, but yeah, it, it's like, like a pub rock kind of thing on the on the CD. This would be an a cappella version. This would be like Johini, Paddy Tony version. <laughs> <laughs> a bus leaving Sligo a long time ago brought me all away from his home. He heard there was work o'er in England, to the Dublin he seeded Rome. and the hollyhead boat there were others like him, from Leithram and Kerry and Down, sons and daughters from all over Ireland, bound for London town. He rambled the city in search of the start, or maybe a room for the night, In his left hand a suitcase of leather and wood, and his grandfather's fiddle in his right. Through the streets of the bombed-out buildings, past the rubble that Hitler blew down, a stray-away child from the west of Ireland, alone in London town, he signed on with a ganger from Dublin, the cruelest little tyrant that ever you met. Had him sweating in trenches for 12 hours a day. Twas hard work, but all he could get. He'd take out his fiddle when the work was all done, when the shovels and picks were laid down, a tune for the broad backed sons of Ireland, come to rebuild London town. Twas seven day weeks with nary a break. Sligo was left far behind. Till one of the boys says, pick yourself up, come down the road for a pint. When he opened the door, me all thought he was home. Oh, what a glorious sound. Sons and daughters from all over Ireland. Playing music in London town. There was Marching Burns from Galway. McCarthy and Casey from Clare. But Lynchie, the Roger, Roland and Farrell Seemed half of all Ireland was there They bid him take out his fiddle And they played till the lights went down Rise at last to the 33rd county Right here in London town Now many's a year has passed and gone But it seems just a fortnight ago Those sessions at the White Hart and the Favored. Fulham Broadway and Holloway Road. It's the music that carries his heart and his soul. It's the same way the whole world round. Whether you're living in New York or Donegal or here in London town. It's the music that carries your heart and your soul. It's the same the whole world round. Whether you're living in New York or Donegal or here in London town. There you go. That's <laughs> uh,
0: very appropriate for a show coming out of Melbourne or about Irish music yeah, and yeah. you know Irish I mean, it's sessions. Yeah, time, but it's anywhere. Yeah. yeah, that's fantastic. Yeah. So what are you working on now? I I have to. There's so many other things I want to ask you about, but um, we might have to save them for my next visit to Portland, yeah. since you have to
2: get away. But well, what I'm working on now is this book. Trying to get this book out, which is basically the transcriptions from three of my solo albums. Um, what, what's that process been like then? <laughs> uh, it's difficult, uh, but I've had, I've had help. There's two women helping me, great people here in Portland. Because um, half the time I don't know... Um, writing down the notes is no problem, but writing down the Boeings is difficult. Half the time, I don't know what I'm doing with the bow, But Betsy Branch is her name. She's great at listening to the record and tell me, telling me what I'm doing, you know? <laughs> so, um... Uh, and this is this is called the solo albums, If the Cat
0: Fits Up Close in Concert and Sweeney's Dream yeah. in the albums.
2: Yeah, on the tunes I played on those records, we're writing them down as I played them on those records. Mm-hmm. Um, variations and and the Boeings, like i said Boeings. that's the, been the hardest battle and that's where betsy murray came into her own and then another woman uh, shannon sharon Sh- uh, <laughs> shannon silka i nearly said sharon shannon shannon silka is uh doing the layout for us mm-hmm. and putting it all into some kind of form that's pleasing on the eye mm-hmm. when 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 you're playing
0: solo and completely solo, Uh, 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 do you enjoy that um, sense of being just there on your own with nobody else and the the music?
2: Yeah, I started out listening to, to fiddlers typically unaccompanied and after all this work with the bands and the different accompanists, you know, I suddenly thought, especially over here in America, I think people who are kind of new to Irish music, who came to Irish music through those groups, those famous groups, the Dan and Alton and the Buddy Band, listening to all the records, there's always accompaniment. But would would they know, have they forgotten if they ever knew that this music, not that long ago, was unaccompanied typically? When I was a boy, most of the older players that I knew actually didn't like accompaniment. They didn't want it. They didn't want guitars and bazookies backing them up. Uh, They played unaccompanied, like the singers would sing. And if there were two or three fellas playing together, they'd be playing in unison. There was no arrangements, you know. So I just thought it'd be nice to get back to that, let people hear it that way. And, of course, luckily, a lot of people like it. So I did an album, a live album, recently... It's called An Evening with Kevin Burke. And it's just, that's exactly what it is. Live, playing, solo, no no accompaniment at all.
0: And a, g- a great chat on, the, on that album as well. And yeah. a l- lovely
2: story about Johnny Cunningham. Yeah. A l- Scottish. Yeah. A lot of people said you should keep the chat in the, you know, usually when you do a live record, the first thing you do is erase all the, all the chat. <laughs> a lot of people said you should keep that in you know we'd like to hear you saying to, you know telling us about the tunes and stuff but it's S- a sense that like
0: notating this right notating these tunes is part of your kind of custodianship of the tradition right yeah. isn't it and the stories about
2: the people yeah. is also part of that yeah and and like I said earlier t- one of the things that really drew me into this kind of music was the social aspect and I'd sit around with these older people when I was a child listening to them talk about their lives and their memories and they'd play a tune you know the long for a collector and I'd say where did you learn that? And they'd say, "Oh, my father used to play that." And then they'd say, "You know, my uncle used to play it too, but he had, he had a different second part. He used to play it like this, and they would play a little variation on it." And then I'd say, "Well, do, does you know, is your uncle over here as well?" And they'd say, "Oh no, he died, and he he went to, you know, he went to America, or he 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 went down in the Titanic, or you know, all this stuff would come out that was." Uh, Reality to these people, but to me, it was almost like mythology, you know. Uh,
0: and it's it's amazing as well. I have this kind of image in my head of just like I'm sitting here listening to you play a tune which you learned from somebody, which they learned from somebody, yeah. And there's this sort of line going back that. into yeah. somewhere in the past,
2: <laughs> hence the term traditional, yeah, you know.
0: Would you would you play uh, Lucy Farrs for me? Because Lucy Farr was someone you knew, right? Yeah, yeah. So that's a great story, which um, as a as an illustration of like your link with the tradition, right? Yeah. I only knew her name from the names of tunes, oh, yeah. right? So
2: oh, I knew Lucy very well. So but who she who was, was one she? One of those people who'd come to the house right. a lot, and she was married to an English guy. Uh, she was a nurse, I think I think she came over before the war. Uh, but she used to play, in, she's from East Galway, played in the ball and the Cayley Band, knew, knew Paddy Faye very well, and she'd play bits and pieces of his tunes, and she seemed to have an endless store of tunes, and um, this was one of them mm-hmm. that she taught me. Um, again, she was really encouraging, you know, You ready? Not yet. Oh, Lucy's fling. So what's the, new, what's the new record? Well, the new record is called Sligo Made, and it's spelt M-A-D-E, kind of a pawn on the tune name. And I call it Sligo Made because I made it in Sligo. I had this brainwave recently. I know so many musicians in Sligo, great musicians. My family's from Sligo. It's had this huge... Influence on me musically and every other way. Nearly every person belonging to me is a Sligo person uh, It's had such a long history of Irish music because of the Those great recordings back, you know, a hundred years ago with Coleman and Cullorn and all them lads uh, And it occurred to me I've never done a, any recording in Sligo so A few months back I just, I went over rounded up a few friends and said come on in and play a few tunes with me and we'll record them so I got a bunch of notorious characters, John Carty Shamey Dowd, uh, Leonard Barry, great piper do you know Leonard? Really great piper he's a Kerryman but he's living in Sligo a fella called Steve Wickham he used to play with the Water Boys but Steve I, Wickham, yeah. used to play with them too and yeah. Yeah. yeah, and he he's uh, living in Sligo. Um, uh, Michael Holmes from Dervish, and uh, he's playing on a few tracks. Um, uh, Brian, uh, McDonough. <laughs> Brian McDonough, Brian McDonough, also from Dervish, has the studio. It's on the shores of Loch Gill, overlooking the Isle of Inish free that Yates made famous so it's it's like everyone everyone on the record is, apart from me is within half hour of sligo
0: when, when you think back on the on the course of your career are you surprised that you find yourself going back to sligo and and being able to to play with these players and I, i'm i'm thinking about this sort of you know you're working in the record shop and you get the phone call and here you are 40 years later, 50 years later, whatever.
2: I'm surprised I don't play in Sligo more often. <laughs> it's not that I'm surprised to find myself there. It's like I'm surprised to find myself not there <laughs> a lot of the time. <laughs> so I'm kind of excited about this record. And it was literally call up a few friends and say, come over and we'll play a few tunes and we'll record them. Would you be all right with that? And of course, everyone said, oh, yeah, grand. No bother. So it just kind of fell into place, you know, and uh, it was great. So I'm looking forward to that coming out. That'll probably be out in the end of 2019, October. I'm, I'm, I'm playing at the Sligo Live Festival in October, and that's uh, incorporated with the Fiddler of Dooney, and I'll be judging at the Fiddler of Dooney. So, and again, there's a Yates connection there. Yeah. Uh, and the obvious Sligo connection. So, since the title is called, co- the CD is called Sligo Mate, I'd probably release it there.
0: Brilliant. Well, yeah. we'll, we'll link to all that through yeah, our, through so, our yeah. website, but that's fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. yeah that's, a cool, that's a cool project. <laughs> yeah. It's great. Yeah. Uh, uh, you've been very kind oh, to yeah. sit and listen, uh, listen to me. You, you, and you've
2: been very kind to listen to me. Thank you. You're welcome. Thank
0: you. That was Kevin Burke. That was me sitting in his house on a beautiful, roasting hot, sunny afternoon. But what a delight! What a delight!
1: It's still—I wasn't even there, but it's just surreal that we're we're at a point where we've just listened to an interview with Kevin Burke. It's it's amazing. The interview is such a—you did a great job. So you know, you know what comes across
0: as well, like um, in, in. every one of these episodes we've we've had a different kind of experience. Um but we always come out of it uh somehow renewed. I mean this sounds a bit highfalutin, but this is true. Like and from talking to Kevin I had this very profound sense in the middle of it that of the connection as he was talking to, about old musicians coming through the house when he was a youngster. And I had I, I could almost visualize a, a line of people, you know, coming up to him and then him talking to me and this podcast kind of broadcasting out that, those stories And those stories going out to more people And that's a sort of sense of um, There's a mystery to it and there's a heart to it And there's a just We were talking to Beth McCracken last week About community and connecting with people And, and, um, and how music enables you to do that mm-hmm. um, And that's just That's what I came away from that interview with just I get that sense. from
1: that interview too I think the first few episodes it was said it's all about the music, and as much as I definitely agree it's all about the music, there's another side of me. The more and more people I speak with that, it's about the people as well. It's, it's about that line of people and, yeah. and taking just a moment to pull one out and, and examine you know, what makes that person that person.
0: And people talk about kind of being custodians of of, of a tradition, right? Mm-hmm. And they, they they really hold that that notion
1: like right close to their hearts. You know, that's a real... That's a real thing. What's the point in your in your learning that uh, you asked? um, Forget you asked someone recently. At what stage did you feel like you had a style? I wonder at what stage you feel that you are a custodian and not just someone hammering it. (laughs) We are actually yeah. sculpting it I'm yourself. I'm not a chancer. <laughs> yeah. I'm a custodian. Yeah. 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 I'm, I'm not don't a chancer. Know. I'm a custodian. <laughs> that's the Baloney Pilgrim's <laughs> <Bologna's> official t shirt <laughs> available from patreon.com forward slash <laughs> Baloney
0: Yes. Uh, thank you for that smooth segue into, into Patreon. So yeah. uh, thanks to everybody who's gone to Patreon uh, to support us. And um, if you haven't done so, that's fine. You're totally welcome to listen for free. But if you want to drop us a, a couple of pounds to help us out with the costs of. Keeping the thing going.
1: And just a reminder, because I know it's very easy to forget I've listened to an interview and music like that. I'm still looking for people. So get in contact. Really want to do some more interviews with like-minded people. When and am in Drada. so that week of the Flak, you 11th to the 17th. It's next week. It's pretty much next week. If you're around next week, drop us a line. Um, on Facebook. Do it through our Facebook page. Yep. Yeah, Yeah, because then Dom can see it. <laughs> don't, don't message me direct He, he gets funny But those kind of things <laughs> I'm joking Alright That's it I think Good luck That's it Um thanks again Kevin Brick
3: Hi my name is Rosa I'm going to eat um, An apple Please get give Dominic And Darwin Five stars Thank you